The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes communities thrive when individuals succeed. Working together, we can help create economic opportunity for all. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, June 27th. In today's news, U.S. asylum officers go to court to warn that President Trump's new asylum policies endanger the lives of migrants. President Trump touches down in Japan for high-stakes meetings with Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, and the House subpoenas Kellyanne Conway while using an appropriations bill to send a message. But first, the big idea. The first debate of the 2020 presidential campaign last night offered a pretty clear roadmap of a new Democratic Party, one that favors a series of ambitious and liberal domestic initiatives and that is much more willing than most Democrats of the past to use the power of the federal government to intervene in the economy on a range of issues, from immigration and climate change to health care. The Democratic candidates were unabashed in their enthusiasm for more government activism. They signaled not only differences with Trump, but also with a more cautious approach of Democrats like Barack Obama. Whether the Democrats put their best face forward was another question, however. The debate was often marred by squabbling, interruptions, and candidates talking over one another and ignoring time limits. The fractious tone highlighted the stakes for many of the people who were on stage who have struggled for attention during the opening months of the campaign. The second debate, with 10 more candidates, including Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, will take place tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, also on MSNBC. But the Wednesday debate was not a warm-up for that, nor was it the undercard event in advance of the main attraction, like the Republicans had back in 2016. Among the 10 politicians on stage last night, there were plenty of strong resumes and experienced politicians. Instead, Wednesday's debate served to open a new and important phase in the campaign for the Democratic nomination. The economy described by the candidates bore little resemblance to the economy the president speaks about on an almost daily basis, At a time when unemployment is at a half-century low and the stock market continues to rise, the Democrats spoke of the imbalance between giant corporations and wealthy individuals and working families who candidates said are being taken advantage of. On health care, Democrats differed over whether the path to universal coverage should mean Medicare for all and an end to private insurance or that it could be accomplished in a perhaps more piecemeal way. But All of them signaled a new aggressiveness on the part of their party to move beyond the Affordable Care Act. Immigration produced some of the sharpest exchanges of the night, as former Housing Secretary Julian Castro challenged others, most specifically fellow Texan Beto O'Rourke, to join him in changing the offense for crossing the border illegally from a criminal to a civil penalty. But overall, the Democratic indictment of the Trump administration was consistent and strong, with the image fresh in people's minds of that father and his young daughter who drowned trying to enter the country illegally, the Democrats denounced Trump's policies of separating families. Elizabeth Warren was the lone candidate from the top tier in Wednesday's debate, the only candidate of the 10 who's polling in double digits in national polls. So she got most of the questions in the opening segments from the moderators, and she made the most of her opportunities. She projected herself as a fighter for average Americans and the enemy of big banks, big oil, big pharma, and others with immense power over the economy. 
Cory Booker, seeking to break out and join others in the top tier, was passionate when he spoke, diverting from a campaign message that has talked about love and unity in favor of much more aggressive rhetoric. And Amy Klobuchar, whose policies and temperament make her more moderate than most of her rivals, got off several of the best lines of the evening. When Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington state, noted that he was the only candidate who's passed a law protecting a woman's right of reproductive health, she jumped in to note that the female candidates on stage have fought pretty hard for a woman's right to choose as well. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, U.S. asylum officers urged a federal court yesterday to block Trump's Remain in Mexico program warning that it is endangering the lives of migrants. The labor union representing asylum officers filed a friend of the court amicus brief that sided with the American Civil Liberties Union and other groups challenging Trump's Migrant Protection Protocols Initiative, which has already sent 12,000 asylum-seeking migrants to Mexico since the start of the year. The union argues that the policy goes against this nation's long-standing view that asylum seekers and refugees should have a way to escape persecution in their homelands, with the United States embracing its status as a safe haven ever since before it was founded, really, with the arrival of the pilgrims in the 17th century. The union said in the court papers that the policy is compelling sworn officers to participate in the, quote, widespread violation of international and federal laws, something that they did not sign up to do when they decided to become officers of the United States government. Meanwhile, up on Capitol Hill, The Senate passed a $4.6 billion package yesterday to address the situation at the border. But the legislation is threatening to get hung up in disputes over a different version of the bill that passed the House with mostly Democratic votes, even as leaders in both chambers insist they won't head home for uh, July 4th recess until they get this done. A normally gridlocked Congress does appear poised to act, although The legislation under consideration is a narrow funding bill that doesn't address any of the broad problems in the asylum laws or the base causes of migration that lawmakers of both parties agree are crucial to address. The legislation would, however, pour billions into the coffers of undermanned and overwhelmed agencies that have buckled under the burdens of nearly unprecedented levels of migration from Central America. And we're learning more this morning about Trump's next big target in his war on immigrants. This president is moving to withdraw deportation protections for the family members of active duty U.S. troops. Attorneys for the family members of men who are deployed to combat zones overseas are racing to submit applications for what's known as parole in place. The wives of deployed soldiers have been told that this option is being terminated soon, according to NPR. The protections will only be available under rare circumstances going forward according to lawyers who have been talking to government officials. This could sow chaos in the military. How can troops concentrate on keeping us safe when they're worried about their loved ones being deported? Number two, Trump touched down this morning in Osaka, Japan for the big G20 summit. As he prepared to leave D.C. yesterday, he unexpectedly telephoned into Fox Business to attack many of the American allies he's scheduled to meet with. Among them, Japan and its leader, Shinzo Abe, the country and the prime minister hosting the meeting. The president questioned the value of the U.S.-Japanese military alliance, a cornerstone of global security since the end of World War II. Trump also insulted European leaders who he's going to sit down with at the meeting, renewed a tariff threat against the Europeans 
denounced his hand-picked Federal Reserve chairman and complained that Vietnam is terrible. The comments fit with his habit of criticizing or mischaracterizing his counterparts before big global summits, remarks that often put our allies on edge and scramble the potential for progress. Trump reportedly is pretty close to getting some kind of tariff truce with China and hopes to make an announcement while he's in Japan after sitting down with Chinese President Xi Jinping. The deal would avert the next round of tariffs from going into effect, which could push the U.S. economy toward a self-inflicted recession. But Trump is taking with him to the G20 his top China critic and a leading cheerleader for protectionism inside the White House, Peter Navarro. Navarro was a last-minute addition to the White House's travel team. Chinese officials are worried that Navarro's coming because of his long-standing hostility to Beijing. He co-authored a 2011 book called Death by China, Confronting the Dragon. There's some worry he could derail a deal at the 11th hour. And the Kremlin confirmed overnight that Trump will meet with Vladimir Putin for at least an hour on the sidelines of the summit. Kremlin aide Yuri Yushikov said Syria, North Korea, Afghanistan, Venezuela, and Iran, among other things, will be on the agenda for the meeting. The presidents are scheduled to be joined by four other officials from each of their governments. Number three, the House Oversight Committee voted yesterday to authorize a subpoena of Kellyanne Conway to compel the White House counselor to testify about her alleged Hatch Act violations. The Oversight Committee voted 25 to 16 for the subpoena after special counsel Henry Kerner said she blatantly violated the Hatch Act, which is the law that bars federal employees from engaging in partisan politics during work. Congressman Justin Amash, the Michigan Republican who has backed the impeachment of Trump, was the only member of the GOP to cross party lines and vote for the subpoena. Conway could be held in criminal contempt of Congress if she doesn't appear after this. And the House voted yesterday to include a provision in a $24 billion appropriations bill, not the border funding bill, that advanced that would bar the federal government from doing any business with Trump-affiliated establishments at all. The bill passed 224 to 196, largely along party lines. The Senate hasn't acted on the corresponding bill, and the Republican majority there is very unlikely to agree to include any kind of restriction that would ultimately become law, not to mention Trump would probably veto it. But the amendment still sends a message to the White House. It brushes the plate over the propriety of taxpayer funds going to the president's personal businesses, which he owns and has refused to divest. In other words, it's taxpayer money going directly to the president's pocket. And that's unlikely to change. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, June 27th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Have a great day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.